morning, church. My name's John. I serve here as one of the pastors on staff. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Great day to be in uh, God's presence. Fun to have the gospel choir here uh, this morning. Love hearing you guys sing out. Not sure if you noticed or not at all this week, but the Supreme Court has been in the news a little bit lately for a variety of reasons. And while I'm not here to talk about the Supreme Court, I'm not going to go into those details, I did find something interesting in the media coverage of the Supreme Court this week. On Tuesday, the New York Times came out with an article talking about America's public confidence in the Supreme Court. And in the article, they actually referenced an ongoing Gallup survey that measures America's collective trust in its institutions. Here's a snapshot of those results from the ongoing, uh, it's a 20-year Gallup survey. As you can see, every institution has lower confidence than 20 years ago. Our confidence, our trust in our institutions is at an all-time low. What's interesting is that human beings are actually designed, we're actually built by God to trust. There's a whole bunch of uh, neurological research that's going on right now, a lot of it through the University of Wisconsin. And one of their studies, just a recent study, talked about how humans are designed, our brains are designed to trust things outside of ourselves. We're actually predisposed to trust. Because when we trust with someone, we connect with someone, we, a pleasure center in our brain fires and goes off because we feel a sense of unity and hope and connection. We're designed to trust. This predisposition to trust is most obvious in children. Most obvious in children. Kids naturally trust others naturally trust things outside of themselves. I can remember when my kids, I've got five kids, I can remember when they were all little. I would do things like, and don't call anybody and tell them anybody important, but I used to do things like put them up in high places and then say, you can jump, I'll catch you. Every parent's done it. Go higher and higher, you know, like five stairs up on the stairs or the kitchen island or even sometimes the top of the refrigerator. (laughs) Jump! I'll catch you! Without fail, kids, my kids would, sometimes they'd get a little worried, but they would jump and I would catch them. Kids are quick to trust. This is why many kids come to faith in Jesus. The, the, Most people come to faith in Christ before the age of 18, when they are children. They are quick to trust. Even Christ himself encouraged us and called us to have faith like children, to have childlike faith. As adults, we know that trust is not that easy, right? Trust is hard-earned. Trust is easily lost. Trust is difficult to reestablish. We know that about trust. There's actually two primary reasons, two primary ways that we lose trust or 
reasons that people don't trust. And the first is that someone or something has abused trust. Now imagine standing with open arms as my child is on the kitchen island ready to jump and I don't catch them. It's a terrible thought. The likelihood of them going back onto the island and jumping again is pretty low, right? Trust had been hurt. I, I had abused that trusting relationship and they're likely not to trust me again. This is why Americans have little trust in our public institutions. They consistently have let us down in some way, shape, or form, or at least we perceive that they have. This is why we have high trust in things like airplanes. Despite the occasional mishap, air travel continues to be by far the safest way to travel. Airplanes rarely fail and let us down, and so we have high trust in them. That's the first reason why it's hard to trust or why we are reluctant to trust or why we lose trust. The second reason, interestingly enough, is that we grow arrogant. We think that we can do it on our own. We trust ourselves more than we trust others or more than we trust things around us. This isn't just being confident. We actually move into an area of arrogance where we think we know best. We trust ourselves and our training and our academics or whatever it may be. This would be if I put my child up on the top of the refrigerator and said, jump, I'll catch you. And they said, no, 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 dad, I got this. We've moved from trusting to confident to this area of arrogance. In our passage today, the prophet Isaiah poses a question about trust, about faith. And he poses it in a variety of, of ways like an Old Testament prophet would do. The core of his message, though, is whom will you trust? In whom will you trust? Who will you trust? Isaiah is crying out to the king, and he's crying out to God's people, and he's saying, who will you trust? Who will you trust? Will you trust Yahweh, or will you trust in yourself And in your kings, whom will you trust? Last week, we kicked off a new sermon series in the book of Isaiah. Make no mistake, Isaiah is a meaty book. There is a lot going on in the book of Isaiah. But at its core, Isaiah is really about two main things. There's two main themes that run through the entirety of the book of Isaiah. And that's the theme of judgment and the theme of hope. The theme of judgment and the theme of hope. Isaiah has words of judgment, prophetic words of judgment from God for the, for the people of God and for the nation of Judah and the people living in Jerusalem because of their infidelity to God, because they have chosen to follow other gods and worship other, other gods instead of Yahweh. They've broken the covenant and they've acted sinful and they've lived unrighteously. And so there's a word of judgment for them. But there's also a word of hope that's woven throughout the book of Isaiah. And that is if you come back to me, if you put your trust back in me, in God, then I will be your God and you will be my people. And, and there's this element of hope that's present in the book of Isaiah. It's just these two themes, judgment 
and hope. Last week we covered Isaiah chapter 6, and in Isaiah chapter 6 we, we saw Isaiah's calling to be a prophet. God calls Isaiah to this work of being a prophet, and then he cleanses Isaiah for that prophetic work, and then he commissions Isaiah to go and say specific words, words of judgment and words of hope to the people of God. And now, today, we move into the next section of the book. This section is known as the historical revelation section of the book. It goes from chapter 7 through chapter 39. So we've got a lot of reading to do this morning. Glad you're awake. Don't worry, we're not going to cover all of that text this morning. In fact, we're only going to look at chapter 7 this morning because it kind of kicks off this entire section. It's interesting, historians and theologians, scholars, have a lot of trouble with this section of the book. That brings great comfort to the preacher this morning. Hopefully it brings some comfort to you as well. Because see, what Isaiah is doing in this historical revelation section of the book is he's mixing together the drama of revelation, the drama of prophecy with very specific historical events. He's giving a lot of detail about historic events, but he's also uh, mixing in with that prophecy, dramatic revelation about what God is going to do and what God is doing. When you add in to that mix the additional ingredient that Isaiah is not simply prophesying about near future events, but he's also prophesying about far future events, things get a little interesting. There's some work ahead of us this morning. But here's the thing, church. I believe that God has a good word for us this morning. In the midst of a, of a difficult, somewhat complex text, I believe that God has a good word for us about faith, about trust, and about hope. Let's look together at Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. I'll read it. It's on the screen. You can go there in your copy of the scriptures as well. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Romaliah, king of Israel, marched to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. The, the use of the word Ephraim is just another word for Israel. Aram has allied itself with Israel, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, share Jesseb, and meet Ahaz at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, be calm, and don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Romalia some have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place, it will not happen. 
For the head of Aram is Damascus. The head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is only Romalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. If you do not stand firm in your faith, Ahaz, you will not stand at all. Who will you trust? Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz, Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. It is, not enough. is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. All right, a lot going on here. You get a little taste of the near future prophetic words, the historical detail and events, and then some far future prophetic words. So Ahaz is king of Judah. Remember, Judah and Israel were divided at this time. And Israel and Judah had enjoyed this long season of peace. But now there is a new ruler in Assyria. His name is Tiglath-Pileser. The third. And he's come to power in Assyria, and this is this big green kingdom to the northeast of, of Judah and Israel. Assyria has come to power, and they're looking, uh, Tiglath Pileser is looking to expand the kingdom of Assyria. So, Israel, the northern kingdom, they made an alliance with Aram, believing that together they would be able to fight off Assyria. So, they they join their forces together and say, We're gonna, we'll take care of Assyria when he comes in to invade. Well, as they're plotting, they say, well, let's go down to Judah. Let's actually attack Judah and we'll get their riches from the holy city and we'll use that to prepare ourselves and be uh, able to better fight against Assyria. So they had attacked and it had not been successful, but it still made Ahaz very afraid. Who will Ahaz partner with? Or what will Ahaz do? This, this time of wondering what's going on makes Ahaz very confused. He's reeling because he doesn't feel like he can fight off the armies of Israel and Aram. So what is going to happen? God, in this moment, sends Isaiah to speak with Ahaz. See, I believe God sees this as a perfect moment for Ahaz to put his faith, his hope, his trust back in Yahweh. And so he sends his prophet to Ahaz to comfort him, to calm him, to guide him. Come back to me, king of Judah. Come back to Yahweh. Put your faith, your hope, and trust in him. God tells Isaiah to bring his son, share Jessup with him. We shouldn't miss this here. This, the son functions 
as a walking sermon, a walking object lesson for King Ahaz. This is why he's included. It's to have childlike faith, Ahaz. Be like Sher Jessup. Be a child in your faith. Come back to me. God will deliver. Ahaz had gone out to check on the water supply of Jerusalem, where he's out checking the the water in the upper pool, seeing if they had enough water to survive an attack. In that moment, Isaiah meets him, and then God actually speaks to him too through Isaiah and says, test me. God does something. This is a unique thing in Scripture. God says, test me. Try me. I'll prove to you, Ahaz, that I am worthy of your trust. What does Ahaz do? No, no, no. I got this. This is a flippant response. I will not test the Lord. I got this. Ultimately, Ahaz doesn't believe in God, and he isn't believing that he can actually provide what is needed to defend Judah and Jerusalem against the the invasions that are about to take place. And we learn what Ahaz does in 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 16, verses 7 through 9. This is what's going on after and behind the scenes of this meeting with Isaiah. Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Kerr and put resin to death. So Ahaz goes, not only does he dishonor God and not put his faith and hope and trust in God, he doesn't, he doesn't connect with Israel, his closest uh, ally. He goes around their back and he makes an alliance with the king of Assyria. Isaiah hears about this in verse 13. He says, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of human humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? This is Isaiah showing us and telling Ahaz his refusal to, to test God and his refusal to believe in God is because he's, he's already acted in unbelief. He's already acted in unbelief by partnering, taking the, the gold and the silver and the, God's riches in the temple and in his treasuries and giving them to a foreign power. Ahaz does not have faith that God will do what he says he's going to do. Ultimately, Ahaz's lack of faith would be his downfall. Isaiah makes it clear to him, if you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. In other words, you'll live by faith or you won't live at all, King Ahaz God is looking for Ahaz to admit his weakness, admit his need for help. But Ahaz does the opposite. He's arrogant, not trusting because he trusts more in himself. 
his political astuteness, his military mind. I'll partner with Assyria and I have the riches to make that happen. Well, Isaiah goes on to respond to the king, but he also turns his attention to the entire nation, the people of God. And he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. And he will bring the king of Assyria. What Isaiah is prophesying about here is a near future event. It's a near future event. He's saying, Ahaz, it isn't Aram and Israel that you need to worry about. They're, they're going to be laid to waste. He says it earlier, they're going to be two smoldering logs, right? They're, that's not who you have to worry about, Ahaz. You have to worry about Assyria. Because of your lack of faith in God, because you did not trust him and because you took his riches and you, you partnered with a foreign country rather than trusting Yahweh, everything is going to be destroyed. It's interesting here because what Isaiah is saying is Ahaz, the very thing that you put your trust in outside of God, the thing that you chose to trust is going to be your very downfall. The thing you thought would rescue you is actually going to be what causes your destruction. Isaiah goes on in verses 18 through 25. I'm not going to read them this morning to outline exactly what that destruction is going to look like. He, he says that Assyria is going to come in like bees and they're going to be so thick that they're going to cover the entire land and they're going to lay waste to it. Of course, this prophecy that Isaiah has about these near future events comes true. Not only did God use the Assyrians to judge the northern kingdom and Aram, leaving them both desolate, smoldering stubs of wood, as Isaiah says. He also uses them to invade Judah during Ahaz's reign. This starts to happen, and it reaches its climax when the Babylonians actually come in and they conquer all of Judah and they destroy Jerusalem and they destroy the temple and they take everyone back to Babylonia in captivity. But this is not all that Isaiah is saying in this passage. Yes, there is a prophecy, a near future prophecy about judgment. But there's also a prophecy about hope. There's judgment present, but there is hope present as well. Because Isaiah's prophecy is not just about near future events. It's about much more than that. It's, not, it's much more than that. See, there was a, a child that Isaiah says will be born. In chapter 8, we learn the name of that, of that child. Maher Shalah Hashbaz. If you're a new parent, you might want to consider it. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. 
when this child is born in the 8th century, it's going to usher in this, this judgment. But there's another child that's to be born. There's far future prophecy that Isaiah is also talking about. There's going to be an Emmanuel that's born during the reign of Ahaz, and it will mean God is with us, but God is with us to judge us. But Isaiah is saying there's another Emmanuel, the real Emmanuel, the true Emmanuel, who's coming to bring hope. There's a, a near future prophecy and a far future prophecy that Isaiah is talking about here. This Emmanuel that's coming will not bring judgment, but will bring rescue. The, the Emmanuel that's coming, born of a virgin, will bring hope. And rescue. Isaiah is not simply talking about destruction and judgment at that time, but he's talking about the hope of the future. And we know that Isaiah is talking about this, this soon to come, this future uh, judgment, and also this far reaching prophecy. Because in the book of Matthew, Matthew writes as he's documenting the events of Jesus' birth. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah is quoting directly from Isaiah chapter 14 when he shares the events of Jesus' birth. Scripture is telling us that with, without a doubt that Isaiah's prophecy meant something in the 8th century, but Isaiah's prophecy meant much, much more than that. There's no doubt that the Holy Spirit intended Isaiah 14 to be a prophetic sign to the birth of Jesus through the Virgin Mary. So we know this prophecy also came true. This word of judgment and this word of far hope, it, it actually came true. Jesus was born of a virgin, and he lived a life on earth that was perfect and sinless. And then he died on a cross. We just celebrated and recognized this just a few weeks ago at Holy Week. He died on a cross, taking on the weight of our sin. And then he's buried, and he's in the tomb, and then he, he raises from the from the dead. God raised him from the grave to conquer sin and death. There's this incredible hope, incredible hope in Jesus. There's a child that was born, Emmanuel, God with us. In the midst of this destruction and judgment, Isaiah giving this word of hope is powerful because we we know that the prophet Isaiah was crying out back then to Ahaz, saying, put your faith, put your trust in Yahweh. And he cried out to the nation of Israel, the, the nation of Judah, the people of God, put your faith, put your hope, put your trust in Yahweh. And church, he cries out to us today. Put your faith, put your hope, put your trust in Emmanuel. Jesus has come. The prophecy has come true. There's a message for the people of God today that, 
We're standing thousand years on the other side of Ahaz's reign. And the prophet Isaiah is still calling out, Whom will you trust? Whom will you trust? Will you trust in your merits? Will you trust in your riches? Will you trust in your acute mind and your academic prowess? Or will you trust in Jesus? Will you trust in Jesus? Will you put your faith in Jesus? Isaiah is crying out to us today. In whom will you trust, church? Will you trust the one that has brought hope? The one that rescues us from our sin? Or will you trust in something else? Or will you trust in yourself? Let me pray. Father God, we love you. I thank you for your word in Isaiah this morning. Thank you for the call from Isaiah that cries out to us even today. Will we trust in Emmanuel? Will we trust in Jesus? Will we give our life to him knowing that he can save us and rescue us? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.